edition of the Road Dogs Podcast. I am your host, Nick Shaw, joined by my cousin and co-host, Josh Shaw. Josh, say hi. Happy New Year, Nick. It's uh, it's a new year. It's 2024 when this is dropping. So, which is, I mean, we talked about it last week. We're trying to get like the Beep. thing. Happy New Year. Let's just do it. I like that. Happy Bue Year. You should definitely drop one in for what Oh, there are, there are going to be Bues being yeah. dropped right, left, and center. The, the listeners are going to be Woo-hoo. like, shut this off right now. I'm done with the Bues. It's their least funny bit, if we even have many bits, so I apologize. <sighs> but we made it, big dog. Woof, woof. woof. You know, another year <laughs> in the podcast books. I have you have woof, woof. We're both trying to get things going that are like the Fletch and, uh, and Mean Girls. That we do it around here, but I think it was a great year for movies. I'd venture to say, as we yeah uh, into the new year, it was um, probably the best movie year since the pandemic. I think pretty easily. I mean, we get like masterworks from I think all of our great auteurs for the most part. Um, there's like a nice differentiation between like your genre stuff and your hard dramas. It really had like one of everything this year that I, I really enjoyed. Like we even got a great sports movie this year. Like when's the last time we can say that? Yeah, we got two. Um, but I feel like this time last year, like when we did this, the best stuff really kind of like had been solidified and top heavy, mm. you know, like the cream had risen to the top, kind of felt like we were getting some COVID leftovers a little bit. And then the Oscars hit and like, I, I think it was a great story. And I think we were both still happy that that cast and crew kind of cleared house for everything everywhere all at once. I haven't really talked about that movie since or really anything like that. And like, I know at one point in the the show last year, I mentioned, I'm like, yeah, some of the movies that came out. Last year, I really want to see right away. I haven't seen many of those movies from last year right away. Some of them I haven't seen at all again. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But, like, this year, I have four or five films that were, like, right on the cr- the cusp of, like, cracking my top ten. I'm looking at my ten right now, and it's, like, I have Barbarian at six. And I really like Barbarian, but that's, like, I think an entity that's out of the top ten. If that was this year, it's out of the top ten easy. So the ten that we'll get to eventually, it's, like, these are all probably, like, nines to tens i feel to me of like there's somewhere on that scale and it's really hard to like if you when we get to like your rankings too you'll probably be like i have this you know back i have this you know back i can't argue with why you have it higher than me right and vice versa yeah same thing uh by the way folks if you haven't seen by the episode title today josh and i will be revealing our top tens honorable mentions things like that just talking about the year of movies like we've done last year on the podcast um, this year, I think we've got way more stuff to like, kind of chew on and talk about, uh, partly because I think going to the movies was an event again this year. Mm. You know, we have the Barbie and Oppenheimer thing where, you know, not really in contention, but in like competition together, you know, and like there's still a bunch of flicks that played the pe- the festival circuit this year that we've yet to see or like haven't dropped yet. You know, 2024 early is probably when some of these will come out. Zone of Interest, The Bike Riders, American Fiction taste of things ferrari just dropped just some of these things we haven't seen i can't find american fiction anywhere near me it's driving me mm. crazy like i really want to see that movie yeah it's uh i thought you would escape like the small town woes when you moved to denver but i guess you're still stuck with like waiting for months for like certain movies because i'm just over here i'm like yeah i don't i don't know whenever i'm gonna see godzilla minus one or or poor things or anatomy of a fall or ferrari like it's uh it's tough living out here is Godzilla minus one not around you? I think it's around, but it's like the 40 minute drive thing. And it's like, I can justify that with like uh, my dad and I, I'm like, Hey, let's go watch the iron claw, you know, wrestling, wrestling, big men. You like Jeremy Allen, white dad. 
Yeah. If I'm like, I, I brought up Godzilla. I was like, hey, dad, they're showing Godzilla at this movie theater. What do you think? He's like, I don't want to watch that. I'm like, you don't like Godzilla? He's like, no, I don't. I've never watched one of those movies before. It's like, what? You? It's just a big lizard running around. I mean, it kind of checks out. I don't know if you'd be a huge fan of it. I loved it, but I think uh, like, come on. I think that's a great place to start too. Without further ado, let's uh, let's crack into it. Let's get into our honorable mentions. Okay. Okay. Um, do you want to start with your your one disappointment first, or do you want to get right into your honorable mention? Yeah, you know, we were gonna do this section, but I think it's kind of stinky and mean, and I'm just not about it. So uh, I kind of changed it to just one thing that let me down, and this is kind of okay. industry wide. We had our SAG after strike, WGA strike, unfortunately, this year. Um, a lot of stuff got pushed back. Things changed around. Uh, proud Alamo Drafthouse season pass member here. Uh, I screenshot Josh every ticket stub before I head to a show. He does. The biggest travesty of 2023 was not being able to send that glorious Craven the Hunter ticket screenshot oh. to my co-host, cousin, <laughs> and main dog. Hashtag release Craven. <laughs> hashtag Craven rules. You know, when you told me that you had like a disappointing thing about 2023 and not to look at the document, I was like, all right, well, this would be really fun. I, I hope Nick has like a nice, like, nice little tirade here about a movie he didn't like. Just more of the same Craven nonsense. Like, I just can't believe that we're like, I thought we would save the Craven stuff for the movie draft recap next week, but I guess like we're just starting early with this. Well, dude, it was hilarious. I, I don't know. It just popped up on my radar again because I heard two people talking about it on like, a comic book podcast thing I was listening <laughs> okay. to. And they were just like, you know, the Craven trailer just looks like abhorrent. And I just started laughing. It was a bad like Sony trailer year for their Marvel stuff between that and the Madam Web trailer where everyone just me and Madam Web death of like, then my mother disappeared in the Amazon jungle. It's like, what's going on between these like two movies? I don't know what's going on. That, that's form of storytelling in general. Mm. But uh, let's start it off here with our honorable mentions. Well, we could stick to the comic book universe. I did actually follow the thing you said, and I have one disappointment for that movie that we could talk about real quick. Um, yeah. It's Shazam 2, uh, writer-director David F. Sandberg. Um, I don't really know what I expected from Shazam 2 because I'm not like a fan of the character, and I wouldn't say I was like, all right, well, this is when they got to do this crossover, and they're going to do this. Like Batman, I've already thought in my head of like, where does the Batman 2 and 3 go? Uh, Shazam, none of that. So all I really knew was like, hey, I really like the first Shazam movie. I know you haven't seen it, but it's a really nice, fun movie that does this cool thing of making you feel like a kid that fell in love with superheroes for the first time. You're like, oh, my God, this is so cool. And I'm a kid again, while also kind of dealing with the fact that you're now an adult and that like real things are coming into focus for you as a person. So it's really cool in that regard. The first Shazam. Go watch the first Shazam. Um, So when they announced Shazam 2, I was like, oh, cool. You know, same team. Same everybody coming back, and um, poof, woof, you know, <laughs> like, like stinky. it's a little stinky. Um, maybe like the magic just wore off for me in the, like the three to four years in between, but I was just like, oof, this is bad. Like the green screen is horrendous. Uh, there's unfunny jokes throughout where I'm just like, oh, like it's not even it's not even like a funny joke that I'm like, all right, it just didn't work for me. It's that joke where it just comes and I'm like, oh. <laughs> and then like Zachary Levi continues to play Shazam as like a five-year-old child when he's a 16-year-old boy. And it's just confounding the whole way through. And there's just like a superb lack of juice in the movie. And I was I was disappointed. I was like, oh, man. Like I was the one WB movie I was really pulling for this year in the comic book world. Just didn't make the mark for me. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Um... 
better luck next time, I would say, but they're kind of starting that whole entire thing over, so it doesn't really yeah. matter. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about the next Shazam movie in 2030, so get buckle up. People will talk about Aquaman. I might go see that today. Okay. That's... I, uh... <laughs> let me get my first honorable mention out of the way here and talk about a really fun movie. Uh, Thanksgiving is the first movie on my list here. Hmm. Favorite horror film of the year? Sue me. Like, I'm a fan of Cheap Thrills. We had Talk to Me. We had Infinity Pool, you know talked about m night last year he had knock at the cabin it's kind of a light year for horror not a lot of stuff that really grabbed me and this is just a, a really great time eli roth returning to like really familiar territory project if you're a fan of the um grindhouse film series by robert rodriguez and quentin tarantino originally was a short trailer in that uh, and i thought it was really gross and just downright grimy but also had the perfect blend of like humor you know there's always something great about eli roth is he's always like aware of like how gory these movies are that he always lets you off a little bit with something kind of funny and uh, to alleviate some of that tension and pressure, but to also build back up again. And I think he did a really good job with that here. And I really enjoyed the script. Some of the performances, you know, they're young kids in a horror movie. Some of them have no prior acting, acting experience, which I actually kind of enjoyed because um, they acted like kids from that generation would. But a good movie embraces technology. Doesn't use it in the sense of like, Oh, well, this wouldn't happen because everybody has cell phones now, which is something I kind of clocked. I was like, oh, that's a really kind of cool invention to like lean in to actually use it instead of like trying to push against it. Um, just a fun time at the movie theaters. You know, everybody was laughing. Everybody was going kind of grossed out at the same time. But one of the best things about those movies is you're still tromping down popcorn and, and drinking soda <laughs> while you're watching them. So uh, it was a great time. Um, how much of it is just like a ripoff of Halloween? Because that was one of the things I was kind of wary of when I was like watching the trailers. I think that's a weak, a weak criticism. I really well, do because it's not. I'm not criticizing. Not, I was just curious. It's not. It's not really that way. It's more of I would say a scream. You know where it's okay. like instead of it being just a, you know, malevolent force like Michael Myers, it's like a who done it. You know more so, mm. which I enjoy. You know, it's it's always fun to try and figure out who's the killer. Everybody enjoys that mystery element of a of a slasher, so. It's good in that regards too. Put some stank on that mystery. Let's go. Maybe like maybe lead with that next time movie instead of like a guy in a Puritan outfit just butchering people. Like, let's get a little mystery going. Well, you know, maybe uh maybe don't be so uptight. You know, I'm in here in t shirt, you're in a collared shirt, we're doing a podcast three thousand miles away. So lighten up a little <laughs> I mean, bit, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I can't lighten up because my first honorable mention is Dreamin' Wild, uh, by writer director Bill Poland. This is a movie I'd kind of been looking forward to a lot. It's uh it's Casey Affleck. It's Walton Goggins getting to play like an actual character or a character and not a caricature, which is refreshing because he doesn't do that often uh, between, you know, the righteous. I mean, we love righteous gemstones, but baby Billy, baby Billy Freeman is just it's not a character. <laughs> That's not there's no like ethos or pathos in that character. Oh, it's just, come on. Get out of here. I mean, look, I, we love baby Billy. I mean, misbehaving. I was singing it the other day to myself, but it's just, you know. It's like, all right, I guess we let Walton just go off and ad-lib for a while, but the guy is a really talented actor, and it's uh, it's on full display in, in Dreamin' Wild a little bit. Um, I had really loved this guy's Bill Pullman's Love and Mercy. We've talked about it a lot. I don't think you like that movie very much, though. Um, no, I enjoy Love and Mercy. Okay. Um, and so when I saw he was doing another musical thing, and for those who don't know, Dreamin' Wild is about um, the real-life story of Joe and Donnie Emerson, who made this record when they were teenagers, and then when they're like 40 to 50 – you know, indie hipsters on the internet find that album and like bring it back. And so it's about the brothers all grown up now, KCF, like Walton Goggins, kind of grappling with this idea of like this thing we made when we were kids is now popular. 
but we never going to be like have the fame or like money that we would have had if it was popular then. Like we're just old men now that are kind of stuck with this and they want us to go on tour. And for one of the brothers, it's like an obsession for him. Like he still works in the music industry to some regard. And for the other brother, it's like, that's just a thing I did. And so it's about this conflict between the two of them. Um, but it kind of left me a little empty. You know, it doesn't really have the emotional weight, I would say, of like a love and mercy. Because as you know, like love and mercy feels like this weird nostalgic trip back where you're taking the rose colored glasses off throughout. Like it starts out really fun with like the making of pet sounds. And then Bill Camp is yelling at Paul Dano at the piano. And like Paul Dano's like, I just want approval. Whereas this movie feels much more than just like, oh yeah, this is what we did when we were kids. Like there's not really the same emotional bite to it. Um, I would say though, before we wrap up, like Bo Bridges, good performance in that movie. It was nice to see Bo Bridges trying again. He's one of my favorite lines of the year. Um, when Casey Affleck is talking to him about how his parents had mortgaged the farm that they lived on so they could keep making the music. And uh, Bo Bridges says, I would have uh, given up the whole world just to hear you boys play. And I was like, oh, that's nice. Thanks, Bo Bridges. Mm-hmm. And you and that soul. Mm-hmm. Very good. My next honorable mention is a movie that you mentioned earlier, Godzilla Minus One. Uh, great movie. Had an awesome time once again at this. But who knew that a Godzilla movie could be a mature meditation on the horrors of the kamikaze pilot in World War II while having a genuine heart of a story to center us while everyone's favorite sea lizard brings death and destruction with every walking step? Um, that's probably because we didn't try and make it. <laughs> it's an example of a perfect release date. Like this movie dropped and it had its run to number one really clearly defined. Uh, but the fact this is a Toho picture and not some crap like we just got recently with the trailer of like, what is it? Godzilla versus Kong versus Mothra versus whatever the <laughs> hell. Like, I don't really care. Um, the fact that this, this movie was so successful, I really think speaks to this character's cultural crossover and endurance throughout like 50 years. Really amazing. Um, the things this film achieves on its budget too are really staggering. I looked it up the other day. It's just... It's great. It's a it's a breath of fresh air amongst kind of like the IP wasteland that we kind of always talk about where there's actually like quality special effects. And you can tell that they want this to look authentic and, and real. <laughs> uh, but like another one of these interesting pairings, I think, if you kind of couple this with Oppenheimer, which is a movie that no doubt crossed my mind while watching this. Like mm. it gets a little cheese at the end. You know, it gets a little little movie, a little Hollywood. But um, as far as just a movie, it was really good and really effective. Like I like. I was moved at points for this, and you'd be really – I'm really surprised by it. The first 20 to 25 minutes after the initial kind of Godzilla attack, and I don't want to spoil this all the way because you haven't seen it, mm-hmm. are really intimate and quiet and just dealing with the aftermath of World War II, which is just like, like wow, what an interesting angle to take. Like, yeah, it's, it's, you can tell that it's not – you know, we just stayed out of the way, which I'm happy. Like, this is a full Toho picture, and I'm really happy to see it kind of have the cultural crossover. It's kind of like a big-ish Godzilla year between the like new TV show they've got, Monarch, which I've been watching here and there. It's all right. You know, it's just like it's Kurt Russell chasing Godzilla. It's like, all right, it's fine. But there does seem to be a real like lacking human connection between the Universal movies that they've been doing and the Toho stuff. Where I, I didn't see Godzilla. What was the other Toho one they did a couple years ago? Was it, is it just Godzilla Toho? I think so. I'm not 100% yeah. positive. I hadn't seen that, but it seems like there's just like a real connection. I think the Japanese audience has and like artists have with that character more than we do. And it almost feels like we're trying to like crib their thing from them to like make money off of the IP. Whereas they can connect Godzilla and the idea of like nuclear warfare, and nuclear monsters 
the very you know clear cut imagery in their own culture. So I don't know. Maybe America just like take a backseat here. Maybe let people have their guns. Yeah. yeah, and well, I just like I the the point of I, the ones that. The, the Kong versus Godzilla or whatever mm-hmm. are to be fun, right? Or to, to feel like a roller coaster or to feel like an amusement park. Like that is the antithesis of that like theory, in my opinion, is those movies. But they're not that. They always fail to like deliver those goods, you know? Like that's what frustrates <laughs> me about those. Like, yeah, I want to put on the cheap pair of glasses and I want to be like, fuck yeah, that's Godzilla three dimensions. But it just, it never really kind of like delivers on that bang. Whereas this was, giving me everything you know also there's a sequence in this that like kind of like feels like an homage to jaws which i know Ooh. you're gonna love it, yeah it's it's fucking awesome so let's check it out man good stuff so, so like this has more in common say like godzilla 2014 than it does you know kong versus godzilla it's fair to say yes but take out the like kind of weird bad, going across the subplot yeah odyssey oh, yeah. subplot yeah <laughs> Uh, my next honorable mention is another one of the movies where it's like, this movie's real. People, Josh, Josh, watch this. He found this somewhere. Um, it's the adults by writer director, uh, Dawson guy, Defa. It's kind of a weird movie. There's a lot that the script is left leaving in the dark of like the situation, which is essentially that Michael Sarah plays this guy who comes back to his hometown to visit his sisters. Um, uh, and like the relationship is very strained between him and his elder sister played by Hannah gross. And you're watching the movie throughout and you're like, what happened? Like, did their parents die? And like the Hannah Gross character was left to kind of like pick up everything else while Michael Sarah just kind of left. I don't know. Um, and it's just kind of weird in that sense. But it really does a great job of like showing the inner children inside all of us, despite like the like deep resentment and pain we've all kind of buried them under. And there's like this really great moment where like they just do silly voices and impressions that they used to do when they were kids and dances. And like it just like wipes away the slate, and it's like, hey, remember when we were kids and we did this and it was awesome? We loved each other. Maybe that's what we need to remember instead of like the bad things we did to each other. Um, it's short, it's sweet, it's really small, and I think if people go watch it, they will be really just like, huh, nothing happened to that movie, which is a, a complaint I get from a lot of my friends when I try and recommend or show them things. Uh, and this would qualify, but I do think the adults is like pretty good stuff in it and you know it's just fun to see michael sarah like cutting loose and just like trying to get back into it this hasn't been on my radar it's something that i've i think we've all seen the meme of with michael sarah breaking out the Tony <laughs> soprano impersonation which is awesome um, no fucking idea I, what it's like to be number one <laughs> um but i it just hasn't been on my radar kind of a small quiet movie like you're describing so maybe i need to add it to the list here it's good it's good try it out just ripping and gripping. I'm trying to like think if I have anything else to say for this one, this next one coming up. But like, I just got one line for you. Okay. I'm I'm a I'm gonna be a daddy. <laughs> My next honorable mention is Priscilla. Okay. Um, really great movie. Some of the best cinematography of the year. Uh, I think Sofia Coppola has this great. Um, we've been kind of watching this great thesis kind of unfold of older man keeps girl as possession, you know, this really kind of strange relationship, whether it be lost in translation, Mary Antoinette, this virgin suicide, um, just a, a marvelous movie. And just, I think the trail of Elvis that you and I were looking for as fans, much more mm-hmm. so of a kind of quiet, broken, disturbed young man, you know, child in a man's body, 
and just anchored by an amazing performance who, of course, I should know this name, but it's completely eluding me. Uh, Kaylee Spaney. Um, thank you. One of the best performances of the year. Uh, it's amazing what they do in this film when Elvis is not in it and how she perceives the world and how all of these spaces become so much more lively when he's in it. Really smart. Uh, it feels like what would happen if you were just kind of brought into this fantasy realm. The movie really just begins. It doesn't let go. It goes through the entirety of that relationship. Uh, incredible craft by the music department to use music inspired by Elvis, but not actually using Elvis's music because they didn't have the rights to his estates. A beautiful movie. The textures, the silk, the outfits, just amazing script. Uh, it's actually online to read right now. When I was reading it recently, the script is like 80 pages. So it's just great how Sophia had this vision and like in her mind, ready to go more so than how she wanted to express it through words. Just a really, really great movie. I have seen Priscilla. We will be talking about it later, Nick. Uh, that's all I can say. I didn't want to cut you off, but it may be on my list. Um, Baba Booey. Baba Booey. Baba Booey, indeed. Uh, my next honorable mention is another small movie. It's called Scrapper. It's by a writer-director named Charlotte Regan. It's kind of like the diet version of After Sun, which was really... I mean, we talked about this like on the phone. It was really my number one movie of last year, but I had to give the Batman number one because I'm me, and I didn't want to discredit the Batman. I didn't want Matt Reeves to know that I don't love... like I do love, I do love you, Matt Reeves. Um, so I had to put After Sun at two, but it was really one. Anyways, uh, Scrapper is... I don't say it's like diet After Sun is like a bad thing, but the plot is very similar of like, little girl growing up her father comes back into the picture and it's about their relationship centrally um and it's kind of about like the the girl's mother has died and harris dickinson who's playing the father uh, another movie about a young father taking care of a little girl um comes back to take care of the girl okay, look it's died after son uh and like takes care of the girl and it's like how do they become like actually connected because they don't know each other at all at, at this point um and like there's not really one magical scene that I can point to to be like, oh, everyone should go see it because of this dramatic thing or like Harris Dickinson, the way he emotes in this one scene or like this little actress, this girl actress is just terrific and she does this one thing great. But there's just this one moment uh, that like pulls your heart out where like Harris Dickinson is going into this room that like was locked and the little girl is like, you can't go in there at all. Like, I won't let you go in there. And he's like, why? Like, I, I just want to go in the room. Like, it's I, I live here now. Like, let me just go in the room. And she's like, no, I won't let you. And one day, Harris Dickinson's character, like, breaks down the door and gets into the room. And what he sees is, like, this mountain of, like, memorabilia and stuff that, like, this little girl stolen. And she's, like, clumped together in the center of the room to, like, go towards the ceiling. It's, like, this literally huge mountain. And, like, next to it is this drawing of, like, how much more stuff this little girl needs to, like, get through the roof and get to heaven. And it's just like, ah, oh, man. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And there's not, like, the moment where, like, Harris Dickinson recognizes that and, like, breaks down. Because he doesn't have a connection with this kid. He's like, whatever. And she doesn't really, you know, voice her real feelings on the matter. But, like, that one moment was enough for me to be like, oh, man, like, small British movies. I'm going to give you a nod on the podcast. Good stuff. Our indie darling, Josh, you know, hitting the top 10 independent film of the year, according to the National Board of Review. I have not mm. seen this, but I think we're going to be talking about Harris Dickinson later on this podcast. We will. So I did I did see that this had come out, um, another movie that I need to see. I feel bad because, you know, you're shouting out the small little British independent <laughs> film that I'm going with. <laughs> my next film is a Netflix release, so uh, my next one is May, December. 
you know, really good movie. It only took Julianne Moore 14 minutes to start hysterically crying. Mm-hmm. I think Natalie Portman, as good as she's ever been, uh, watching Melton portray a boy in a man's body never ceased to disturb me at any point. Haynes keeps us in these wide two or three shots for the majority of this film. You now it's like omniscient viewer to these dark secrets we should never know. Secrets that the characters themselves have yet to kind of reckon with or talk about. Uh, the wrinkle he gives Portman's character as a willing participant or puppet master savant is brilliant. Executed in a way, too, where the film can hold the weight of different interpretations. You know, it doesn't, like, sag under that pressure. And I'll think, I think it'll leave you thinking well past the runtime. It's got one of the killer endings of the year. Just great stuff. Yeah, I watched this movie on an afternoon by myself in the living room. Wouldn't recommend the experience. Feel very icky, <laughs> just very gross, just like super disturbed. Um, it's really weird that like Todd Haynes just makes these great movies every three to four years that like really go under the radar for the most part, besides like a, a small group of people that really recognize his brilliance. Mm-hmm. Like between this and like Carol, he's just so good. But also like this feels so different where Carol feels like this kind of weird love story. This is this like fucking really gross movie. Like, that's what I kind of love about May, December when I watched it is like there's no quarter given to almost anyone besides like the Charles Melton character. It's almost this like there's monsters at every single turn and corner besides Charles Melton who's just like, what did I do? Like, I just ah, I'm just stuck here and I can't leave. And like his breakdown outside the graduation, my own, like, God damn. In this quaint suburbia too, isolation, it's not like flashy in any way shape or form which i thought was brilliant too like Mm. they're not living a lavish lifestyle and i think that that wrinkle of it made it feel all the more uncomfortable because the places and the spaces feel familiar you know like that pet shop i've I've driven by a a shopping plaza like that so many times and it's just you know it makes you think like what the hell happened in the back room Yeah, it's like it, it does this thing that I think we'll kind of notice when we look at my list of like honorable mentions of just like children that are messed up or someone has to try and take care of this child. And this movie really like accentuates that, but in a different twist where no one took care of this kid. And so, yeah, just, this is the child who was thrown in the middle of the lake without like a life vest. Yeah. Yes. This is Jason Voorhees who drowned in the water and like just decided not to get revenge. He just decided to like let himself bloat essentially. And, 100%. um, even like the Charles Melton character, though, I think talking about like the no quarter given, he's having an emotional affair with someone else. Like even he's not a great guy. Is a physical affair with someone else. <laughs> well, that that too, that as well. But it almost is this weird thing of like, is he perpetuating a cycle because of what Julianne Moore's done to him, where he doesn't know how to interact with anyone, so he doesn't know how to form a healthy relationship with anyone but his kids. So he's doing this to that person. They're it's just like it's a lot of like it explains a lot of how you get so many shitty people. Of just like the way people treat each other and the way they like toxicity just like leaks through. It runs through the blood. Yes. Great movie. I highly recommend everybody check it out. Uh, my next honorable mention, sticking with the small movies that no one has really seen or talked about, is uh, is Fremont. It's through, uh, by director Babak Jolly. If I mispronounce it, I apologize. Uh, he wrote the script with Carolina Cavalli. Um, it's great. It's like an unconventional, somewhat un American movie. Uh, it's like an exploration of like finding your place in a world while finding your place in the American system that will take heroes and puts them in the back of a Chinese restaurant typing messages on fortune cookies. It's this black and white, an hour 30-ish movie. If I'm not mistaken, you have it right now, don't you? Yeah, it is 92 minutes. 92 minutes about this uh, Afghanist, Afghani woman who comes back 
from the war to live in Fremont, California and like starts to live there, but she can't go back home. And so she's like, well, I need to see a therapist as I'm, I'm messed up, you know? And so she finds this therapist played by um, Greg Turkington, who delivers one of the best performances of the year that no one's talking about. It's so, he's so good in this movie. If you watch it, um, just like he just keeps on bringing up like White Fang, the the Wolf book, and it's like, yeah, White Fang is just the best book ever. And like multiple scenes about him talking about White Fang, it's just great. And um, <laughs> it's about this woman just finding her place in America. And I don't know, it's small, it's quaint, it's really good. Jeremy Allen White is in it, which is how I figured out about this movie. Uh, I'm, two of my honorable mentions have a guy from the Iron Claw. Maybe maybe that tells you something where the Iron Claw might be on my list. <laughs> and so. He's in the movie, which is why I think a lot of people might find it at first when they're going through his IMDb, which is what I put in my letterbox review of like in 20 years, we're going to go back to Jeremy Allen White's filmography when he's done all this stuff. You're like, oh, Fremont, what's this? I haven't seen this movie before, but I really hope this is like the foundational performance that lets, um, you know, Baba Jolly and, and Anita Walizada, who plays uh, the titular girl in the movie, like have a career because this is really good stuff uh, that not a lot of people are talking about. Great stuff. I I saw you clock this on Letterboxd. Uh, another one that I just haven't seen. Josh is a Josh is a little bit of a indie spinster this year. I am. I, I, I am. respect well, it. I respect it. Well, because you're like, ah, oh, you should go watch these boxes Titans or whatever. And I'm like, I will. I will eventually. Like, there will always be time for me to go rewatch Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One. But there's not a lot of time to always remember to go watch like a small indie movie that people made on the cheap that means something to them. So I always want to like give those my time more so than like a rewatch of a big movie or, or something. Yeah, that's fair. I totally understand. Um, but yeah, I think you should yeah. also watch big movies too. I will. <laughs> I'll get to it. <laughs> Famous words. Famous words. My next honorable mention is They Clone Tyrone. Jamie Foxx, most underrated comedic performance of the year. Not even a Golden Globe knob. Like, get out of here. I thought that was a little crazy. Um, but I think everyone in three years is going to tell you, dude, did you see that like cult hit favorite Netflix movie uh, popped up on my algorithm? <laughs> I, I think probably because it had the unfortunate timing of dropping the same weekend as Barbie and Oppenheimer. Mm. But just immaculate costuming and style. It's dripping with nostalgia, even in the way it's shot, kind of while using it against you in a It Follows way, where the time period is kind of indiscernible. Keep an eye out for Joel Taylor. He's been pushing the boulder up the hill for a while, writing Creed sequels or Space Jam reboots. But look beyond the surface of Tyrone, and it's absolutely gut-busting performances. And you'll see a black American man commenting on themes of blame, poverty, repetition of mistakes, redemption, uh, all in this really cool sci-fi comedy. Really original story. I uh, I dug they call Tyrone. Real good stuff of like John Boyega getting to cut it loose and like do stuff outside of Star Wars for the first time in a while, which is really refreshing to watch as a viewer. Um, Tayona Paris is great in it. I, I did my only problem with the movie is I felt the subtext was a little too overt when I watched it, where I was like, all right, I got it. You know, like I get where we're going for here when they find the little clones that you would, you know, assume so. But it is this really fun, like paranoia trip throughout like the American system. And what they do to people and um without feeling too go ahead awesome ending too just real quick I had to yeah throw yeah it feels like very much like a conspiracy theory that people have but then they just made it into a movie but it's not trying to like be too sensational you know what i mean like it doesn't feel like it's going for like hey can you believe this it feels very grounded they're just like telling the story of what they feel was right well and much like that joe flacco 
play action bootleg the other night. They do a great job of like until the third act, you really don't have all the pieces together to understand what's going on. You know, and I enjoy that. Like I didn't feel lost, but I was also really kind of like, what the fuck is the actual like reason <laughs> And it's kind of delivered in a little bit like I don't want to like compare these two movies because like of the subject material and who made them but it does does feel like get out in a way which i really love is mm. like the exposition in that movie when you kind of finally understand what's going on and why they're doing these surgeries it's not really like on the nose exact with its explanation you know it's very personal and i thought that was another great element of this movie is it made that part personal um great movie everybody can see it on netflix as i shout out to two titans and josh's with his cute little indies over here uh, <laughs> I got one more honorable mention, and then I'm I'm ready to start the top tens. But go ahead. Should I go with one one more indie for you, and then we can get to something else? You, you do whatever you want, okay. babe. We can we we got no time. Showing up by Kelly Reichert. Good movie. Good stuff. You know, uh, much like Freeman, no one has really talked about this movie or seen it. But you know, I loved it. It's great, Michelle Williams. Great Kelly Reichert script about you know simple people in complicated situations. There's a really fun Andre 3000 performance just showing up here as like a guy making clay stuff. It's like oh. It's Andre 3000, and they're like, yep. Great year for Andre 3000. Dropped his fruit album. Yeah. Sounds yeah. amazing. I listen to that. Keeps me quite zen when I'm writing. I mean, the the thing with uh, Kelly Reichert, as much as I liked her movies, which I've watched this year, which is this and, um, oh, man, what's the other one? Uh, with Michelle Williams. I'm blanking. It's all right. Uh, it's kind of like in pretentious, like, hey, man, this is the real art. No one's talking about, you know, sort of thing. So, like, if you watch it, Prepare to like not pick up on a lot and like think about more. I feel is is how I feel about her movies because they're not like trying to be too like all over the place or in your face. They're just very simple movies about small people doing things that mean something to them. And I think if you watch them, you'll have some fun with them if you're into that sort of thing. But I don't think she's a writer director that's for everyone uh, by any stretch of means. You say that this is kind of one of those small, quiet ones, but I've seen this pop up on some lists for, like, top tens of the year. I believe you shouted this out on your 2023 discoveries as well, didn't you? Not? I believe I did. I, I'm pretty sure I did, so I'm kind of double-dipping here. And, you know, you know why those people shouted this movie out, Nick? Because, like me, those pretentious people, they know what's the good stuff. They know, I was going to say, right. what, because you're <laughs> awesome? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah. My last honorable mention is Dream Scenario. Great movie, and I have a quote to start us off. Mm. That movie did something that all good art does. Maybe it poked and prodded in some areas I didn't want it to, but it made me think, and it made me feel something. I'm paraphrasing, but that was Katie post-dream scenario. Mm. And I don't think any cinephile or film critic or essay could sum up how a movie made me feel so beautifully and succinctly as she did. I think Tanner also hit on something, too, when we talked about this flick pre-Lone Star, when we were just kind of chopping it up together. Nicolas Cage has this ability to turn his manic, crazy energy into something kind of of a Jimmy Stewart model or like a, I don't know, like maybe like a, like I can't really think of another comparison, maybe like a Paul Newman, I would say, like that can be sweet and gentle and pitiful, you know, just really kind of like soft and sincere. The chemistry that him and Julianne Nicholson, who has just been underrated for far too long, that's the reason to buy a ticket. Um, but what it's saying on our views of celebrity, fame, and like viral sensations are the reasons you should return to it. Um, it doesn't have a third act that sets up the concepts it goes for as strongly as I think 
it does in the first half. But like late career Nick Cage deserves an Oscar nom for this one, in my opinion. This is my favorite performance of the year. Um, Whoa. I wish this were real. Me too, Nick Cage. <laughs> oh, Me too. I thought you'd be like, I wish I saw Nick Cage in my dreams every single night. Um, this is one I have yet to get to. I am looking forward to it when I get to it. And we should also mention, like, we'll probably get to all these around Oscar season when we do that stuff, because we'll have them all those on VOD if we need them by now. So we'll be able to talk about these then, which is good. Um, but yeah, Dream Scenario looks really good. I, I'm really excited to watch it whenever that is, because it just looks like such a such a fucking and also, trip. What again? Just a, a solid year for Michael Sarah. His scene in this is mm. like a startup kind of Elon Musk esque character. Some of the hardest I've laughed. And there's also like a great body gag humor that just usually those things were like, all right. This, it's a it's a it's a fart joke, but it, it's an amazing <laughs> fart joke, and the timing of it and when it happens, just ah, uh, it's hard. Some of the most uncomfortable and like hardest I've laughed at a movie theater this year. So had to have that close out my list. Um, you know, are there performances that probably this is something we'll get into when we get farther into our list as we get ready to crack the top ten here? Are there movies that I think um have better performances, maybe like from a quote unquote better in parentheses standpoint? Sure, I'm sure there are, but like this was my favorite of the year. And, like, that's not even really close. Good for you, Nick. Good for you. Indulge me on your pretentious corner. Let's just be, like, let's just be highfalutin people who think, like, we know best. That's what I say about, like, weird movies. Hell yeah, brother. You know, last year I kind of sold out. I didn't put some <laughs> movies on my list that I probably should have. So this year I'm, I'm on me. I'm doing it for me. My last honorable mention, we'll do this one quick because I didn't write a lot about it. It's Blackberry, baby. Glenn Howerton ripping it. Ooh. Jay Baruchel ripping it. Everybody's just having a good time. And this movie's so cool because it's almost <laughs> it's almost like you're watching a dinosaur movie where you watch the dinosaurs like start to evolve and they become the apex predators. It's like, oh cool, the dinosaurs, here you go. But in the back of your head, you're like, that asteroid's coming, baby. And the way that they sh- <laughs> they shoot this movie, the way they shoot like the Steve Jobs iPhone presentation with the flat screen instead of the keyboard. It's like, oh, that's the good stuff, baby. That's let's go. Let's go. It's it's like really deeply funny, but uncomfortable. Uh Matt Johnson, the writer director this movie, he's gonna have a good career. I feel good. I'm calling my shot. I don't know what he'll be doing in a 10 years, but I'm sure he'll be doing bigger stuff than this because Blackberry's a movie that got like such respect and such cred uh between like the mainstream audience, I feel like it got like a decent chunk of views and critics that I feel he'll be on a good path, but uh, it's good stuff. It's really fun. I've been like kicking the can on this movie for a month of just like, yeah, I'm going to watch this today. Yeah. I'm going to watch it today. I'll watch it the next day. Like I just, I don't know what's been going on with it, but I've loved Glenn Howerton. I'm a huge, always sunny head as you know. Um, but yeah, this is definitely something I need to check out. I think this is also probably a great way to close out the list because like you said, like, this is a big enough movie now that I don't think the ton needs to be said more than that. Yes. You know, like just go check out Blackberry. It's it's on AMC plus, I think. So uh, I'm looking forward to watching that maybe today. And also if you watch it, it's legit fun. Like the social network flies by, but it's like this dread almost, but Blackberry is like legit fun to watch and like really captivating. And it's just like a train that just keeps moving and moving and moving and moving until it just ends. Josh, without further ado, I think it's time we crack the top 10. Josh, what's your 10th film of the year? My number 10 movie of the year is 
Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, uh, written and directed by James Gunn. This is a trilogy that has always meant a lot to me uh, as a kid who you know grew up alongside these characters. Uh, Nick, you and I saw the first one together in theaters. It's one of my favorite theater-going experiences where both of us go in and are like, what is this movie going to be? Um, there's a talking tree and a talking raccoon and there's a green lady and then Chris Pratt. Who's Chris Pratt? And so like watching these actors rise and fall in their careers and watching the characters grow from man child to kind of dad to then leader of a people with star Lord or rocket from like outside a raccoon to kind of like still a douchebag that cares about his friends a little bit, but also doesn't know how to be a friend to then now the leader of the future group. Um, and, and the way that these people all evolve and change is just beautiful to watch. Um, it's, I think, elevated in a way and onto this list because the special effects of this movie are outstanding. You know, it, it set a number of the most amount of makeup and uh, prosthetics used in a film. And God, you really, really feel it. <laughs> like, it just looks immaculate, the character designs and everything about it. And it's so much fun. Watching it in theaters with uh, my four friends who all watch the Marvel stuff kind of rise and fall with me and us all agreeing after it like that was great and this is probably as good as it's ever gonna get for this universe at this point and we're not going back probably it was this real cathartic like hey goodbye so like this whole universe and world that kind of meant so much to me as a kid growing up and james gunn just like does this great thing that he's always done throughout his career in this trilogy of like make me laugh and then make me want to cry and like really hitting me in the feels of like emotion and honesty and my favorite thing about this movie, bar none, is just the fact that, like, look, there's so many superhero movies, and, and the problem with a lot of them is, like, oh, we got to save the world. We got to do this. And I'm sure a lot of people have made this point, so I'm not breaking ground. But Guardians 3 is like, we got to save our friend. And it's just really nice and sweet and touching. And uh, that's why I give it number 10. Maybe I'm a little biased. No, I think that's fair. I was actually kind of with putting it on my honorable mentions list uh i really enjoyed it it's the marvel movie i've enjoyed probably the most since guardians of the galaxy 2 to be honest (laughs) and i felt the same exact way it was kind of like this cathartic goodbye and the the prosthetics and the special effects don't feel gregarious they feel necessary and i and i love the fact that um james gunn with his last little kind of swan song for marvel here really went for it and did all the things he does Maybe do a little bit of exhaustion and a la needle drops. Um, <laughs> but overall, I thought it was a really fun experience. And uh, one that I wish I had in the movie theater. Did not see this in the movie theater. It's just a, it's a great time. I mean, I went from like pumping up indies to then like giving Disney my number 10 spot. So maybe I'm not the hero people want me to be. But look, I, I enjoy the Gardens movies a lot. And I think it's the best trilogy of the last 10 years. I think it's probably fair to say. Well said, babe. Uh, my number 10 of the year is Bo is Afraid. Nick's dreams, but what if Joaquin Phoenix is essentially how I felt then and kind of how I feel now. Uh, <laughs> we did a whole episode on this, so I'm not going to belabor the point. We can kind of cruise through this one. But the sheer scope of this just kind of shows the direction I think A24 is headed for the next decade. I mean, the trailer for Civil War just dropped, so check that out. It's their most expensive film of all time. Uh, Aster calls his shot. And he makes his most obtuse, abrasive, anxious, ambitious, and vulgar movie yet. Which is saying something when the guy <laughs> made the strange thing about the Johnsons or Midsommar. But I can't say there's one move at, moment across these three hours that ever made me feel loved or safe or comfortable. But I can promise you that I could not look away. And that alone, I think, gets it in the top ten. Yeah. Um, but I was afraid. I, I, I still feel really complicated about this movie. 
where on the one hand, as we mentioned when we did the uh, episode on it, of like really great, ambitious scope and, and ideas. But on the other hand, just a fucking mess. Like in some good ways, some bad ways. Of just it feels like it's all over the place. But I want to return to it the closer we get to Oscar season because I don't know. Is this even in the race? Do you think, or do you think this is definitively out? No, I don't think this no, has any chance not. or anything. So, so, <laughs> so there's probably no chance to really get like a reappraisal of it for a while. Uh, for me, but I do think it's a pretty good movie. I think it is worth your time, which is something I continually feel about that movie. I don't know if it's worth a place on on my ten list, but it's it's worth your time to go check it out and do yourself a service. It's like no one's doing what Ari Aster's doing. I love a filmmaker who's not afraid to double down on the idea that this movie is not for everyone. And like, as somebody who again fancies himself as maybe a creative themselves, I have to like appreciate and respect that you know that's like stuff that people were doing in the 70s when it comes to that regard um i think that ariaster is again somebody who i hope gets a couple hugs and sees a therapist but i also hope is uh, able to make some other really interesting things and not just kind of caught up in um horror genre and i think this is a great example of him trying to like stay in that realm but like pushing outside of that bubble and expanding what that can be. And that's what I really enjoyed about this in the whole second half of like, or not the second half, but like the little sequence in the woods where it just kind of like is a huge setup for a joke. Like that was one of my favorite moments of this theater (laughs) of of a theater going experience this year where I'm just like, wait a minute, what the fuck? (laughs) Like that was all for this punchline. Like that really was pretty awesome. So uh, again, probably not everybody's cup of tea, but that's fine. It was my cup of coffee, and that's why it's my number 10. I mean, look, if there's a dick monster in this movie, you can't say about anything else this year. So Get maybe... shot with a fucking machine gun. That's right, What's baby. What's up? That's right. And then the movie ends with the well, – I don't want to sip away how the movie ends, but the movie ends, you're just like, huh, that's it? That's the film just ended, huh? That's how, that's how we're ending this thing. Okay. All right, cool. That is probably the longest and bleakest I felt in the movie theater this year. Yes, this movie. <laughs> I feel I felt the same way. Every, I, we mentioned on the episode, but everyone in my theater just sat there and was like, "Oh, all right. Well, I guess you can't win sometimes, huh?" Yeah. So I have to, as the uh, constant pessimist here at the Road Dogs podcast, have Bo is afraid as my number ten. <laughs> uh, my number nine then uh, is a movie that we teased already. It's Priscilla by Sofia Coppola. I don't know, Nick, entirely if this is like me just trying to be a defiant rebel in response to Elvis last year, the uh, the Baz Luhrmann Elvis. But like, this is the good stuff here. This is the good stuff. Remember when people made nuanced movies about real people instead of just performing lip service for the estate? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Go Sophia for being like, no, nah, this dude was a weirdo. This dude was a certified weirdo that took a 14-year-old girl and made her his little doll. And we talked about May, December making you feel sick. This movie made me feel sick probably maybe just as much if not more because like may december is like a vain exploitation of a young man but priscilla is about this misguided love a young man offers a young woman and i love and i want to stress young this movie is over the top like she was 14 which is really refreshing (laughs) and nice to see this movie that point out like hey tell the truth yeah yeah, tell the truth thank you tell the truth as, as will smith said in concussion um but I also felt so sick because I actually believe that Elvis loved this woman in his own way. And I believe that he never touched an appropriate in her life. I believe that he waited till she was of legal age. But I also see that this movie recognizes that he manipulated this young girl's youth to give him like a pure companionship and dependency that his fame could never afford. 
And even that one sentence right there is more ambitious and more interesting than anything Baz Luhrmann posted in that entire fucking three-hour movie of like, what if Elvis manipulated this young girl because he needs someone who loves him purely because no one else does? Oh, wow. Interesting. It's almost like you could do that with real people because they're, they're three complex characters instead of just anything else. Like other people want Elvis's money. Other people need him for other stuff or their own like vain interest of like, I want to be famous too. But Priscilla like just likes him, like not his money, not Graceland, not his music. She meets him when he's in the military, when he's got nothing, he's no one. And yet she still likes him. And yet he's still pretty famous when he was in the military. Sure, but it's not like he's on the road touring and he's like coming off the stage as Elvis Presley. He's at a piano, just like singing one of his old songs in a small house, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet this is his reward to her, which is like a hollow mansion, a stone heart, and an affection return so long as his needs are met. And we talked about Kaylee Spaney earlier, just knocks this one out of the park. Just like extremely impressive that she can go from 14 to 30 in this movie and you don't really blink an eye at it. Yeah, and like you can't even really tell, like the no. way that the, the movie handles time. Movie handles time in a really smart way too. One thing that I clocked with the script is like, you know, Elvis like talks about the Beatles in the sense of like not knowing who they are, you know, so you know the, the, <laughs> the fall is coming, which is pretty great. Really smart script writing, uh, beautiful set design, amazing set design. I don't think we need to say much more other than that because I kind of uh, wax poetic earlier from my standpoint. Mm. But a great movie that did almost make my top ten. I will also want to throw in like Jacob Elordi, um, just terrific. He's a that's guy. That's a hot boy. That's a <laughs> that's a fuego guy right there, folks. I mean, this and Saltburn this year, this guy's just shooting up the rankings of like hot guy rankings. It almost feels tell me if I'm crazy. It almost feels like Brad Pitt, like young Brad Pitt coming up the stars. When I look at Katie when we're at the movie theater together, and you know somebody comes on the screen, and I just look at her, and she goes. Mm-hmm. I know that that's a hot boy. So he's yeah. got the juice. Yeah, he's got the juice. He's got the juice. He's so good in this movie as Elvis. His voice is not at all distracting, which I was so grateful for. It doesn't feel like he's trying to do Elvis. He's just doing like the closest he kind of can. Um, but this movie also is a great thing in the script that we kind of want to mention here is like he talks so much more than her, and it's such a smart small thing that people should just pick up. Is like Priscilla is mostly confined to just standing there being like, uh huh, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. And that's the realism of this movie that I really enjoy and how this movie captures the relationship of like a warden and a prisoner, a love-struck girl and a man-child, a husband and wife. Uh, it's just really cool. It's really good stuff. It's good stuff. Perfect timing, too. Um, if uh, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis is, I don't know, Bad Street Boys. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> this is... Uh, this is the Clash's London Calling. Ooh. Wow, look at you go. Again, I do just want to reiterate, a little disappointed we got no one else playing Colonel Tom Parker. I would have loved it to see someone else take a spin, but unfortunately. I will say, actually, real quick, that's one of the brilliant things in this movie, before yes. we move on to my number nine, <laughs> is the fact that yeah. Colonel Tom Parker's presence is felt throughout this movie, yes. but he's never seen. It's it's really yeah. smart and really great. It's almost like you shouldn't have him be in your face in the first minute being like, <laughs> it's me, Colonel Tom Potter. But that's just an idea. Uh, my number nine of the year is The Iron Claw. Mm. This movie has the ensemble cast of the year, and I don't really think it's that close, really. Some other really good ones, I think I think of Poor Things, Oppenheimer. But 
just the way that everybody's working together and how genuine the bonds feel in this movie really moved me. Uh, this movie simultaneously hurt my heart and made me laugh all in the same scene sometimes. Mm. And um, it, it captures something that we both have familiarity with, unfortunately, and that's grief and loss. But it captures it in a really unique way in the sense sometimes that can just be the numbness of someone being gone. And I think Zac Efron has never been better. You know, the physicality of the last training scene is up there with anything Sly or Arnie ever did. There's some incredible dolly work. The slow zooms to close-ups as to far as far as whose perspective we're in. And the muscles, just woofy woof. <laughs> but it's a respectful homage to a dynasty and the wrestling community who embrace them. It's a crowded field. But if A24 puts some weight behind Claw, look out for some late Oscar surge, I think. I think this is the best movie they put out this year. We will talk about the Iron Claw uh, when we get to me. I have it at number four. Um, so we'll do some more of my thoughts. But I think the Oscar thing is one thing I want to talk about while we're doing it now. I think there's a chance that we could get some good stuff going for this movie. Because it's getting, I don't know if you've seen this. Maybe I'm just like Iron Claw pilled on Twitter. And like the propaganda algorithm is just like filtering me all the Iron Claw tweets. But like I'm seeing a lot of people praise Efron and this movie. That I think it has a legit chance of best picture now. Like a week ago, I didn't think that, but the way audiences have responded to it makes me really hopeful it might get one of those 10 spots. I'm hoping so. Me too. I'm hoping so. Because I I honestly think it is one of the best movies of the year, and I don't really see... I don't really see an argument for it not to be here, honestly. No, and again, just a movie to me where I was really anticipating it and excited to see it, but like blew me away... Mm. far beyond my expectations and i think that that's kind of one of the things that's happening for people is this is a movie that i think people thought would be a sports drama maybe a little bit of a melodrama but it's really not it's it's really subtle and it's really touching and poignant and the wrestling choreography done in this movie was done by chavo guerrero jr mm. eddie guerrero's son amazing job with the choreography it the best captured wrestling films on scene i know some people say the wrestler great movie not a lot of wrestling in that movie right it's not about that <laughs> as much this movie has like probably 25 30 minutes devoted to wrestling the way it stays in that big wide angle when they're having their final match as a brother oh, it's just it's brilliant the slow zoom in that's like a five minute wonder it's just it's it's magnificent it doesn't have to be flashy but it can still ground you in reality and make you feel things for these characters who are so larger than life like I'm sure we'll get into it more when you get to your pick, but just mm. an amazing movie and one that touched me. The way very, it's been marketed, the way it's been marketed in commercials is absolutely insane. I don't know if you've seen them while you're watching football lately, but this no. Sunday I saw some commercials for the Iron Claw, and they're ripping the Tom Sawyer needle drop, and they're like showing them wrestling. It's like the Iron Claw, and it's like guys who not market that movie this way <laughs> because yeah, because you're just scared people have to be like, oh. A sports wrestling movie with the Bears, Jeremy Allen White, and Zach Efron. Let's go! And they walk out of the theater, tears in their eye, and um, it's just an odd choice for the marketing, but I respect it. Yeah, it's it's a great movie. It's my number nine. My number eight movie of the year is uh, TMNT Mutant Mayhem. This is uh, directed by Jeff Rowe. It's written by Rowe, Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, Brendan O'Brien, Dan Hernandez, and Benji Simmet. Um, my thing I wrote here was "fuck you." Everybody gets one. Look, uh, you know, like, is this one of the best movies of 2023? No, I, it's not. I will admit that. I am upfront about it. Is this even the best animated movie of 2023? 
No, it's not. Is this the second best animated movie of 2023? No, it's probably not. That's probably The Boy and the Heron or Spider-Verse. Take your pick. But you know what? I, I or Elemental. About, or Elf. <laughs> Next number one movie of the year, Elemental. Um, but for me, we talked about this a lot in the 1990 TMNT episode. Uh, this is a franchise that I've loved since I was a kid. I've been dying for a new movie to try and tackle them in a different way that actually kind of capitalizes on their potential. And this movie just does it. Uh, it's uh, a list of Josh's best movies of the year, too. Not, you know, the consensus best movies of the year. It's our list. And um, I watched this one in an empty theater by myself, and I smiled all the way through. I didn't feel it's it completely like... empty. Well, I saw it late. I saw it pretty late because I was doing other stuff. Um but I watched it, and there was not this pressure of like, oh, everyone else is laughing in the theater. Isn't this fun? I was just like, this is fun. As I was sitting there by myself, just having a really good time. Um, and like, you don't have to agree or, or disagree with other people who listen to this episode, but like, at least like us pretentious, preteen minded dickheads can like understand. Some people just want to go to a movie and like have something that rewards them for like why they fell in love with stories in the first place. And the TMT is something that like made me fall in love with the ideas of like heroes or heroes and just stories and movies and television. And so to see it all kind of come full circle now that I'm older of uh, this like genuinely nice, good movie um, was awesome. It was great. A property that has always kind of just been like in a, in a beautiful way. Who is this for? Right. Yeah. Like even this film seems to be kind of having a lot of nineties references, whether it be the soundtrack and stuff like that. So what I find amazing about this is like, while there's probably a bunch of lessons for kids, there's a bunch of nostalgia here probably for adults to go back and, like, again, remind them why they love these characters and why they love their story and all that. Um, this is a one for you. We all get a one for mm. you, babe. Yeah, you know, that's it's right. Top 10. This isn't the National Border Review Top 10. This is the two Road Dogs Top 10s. Yeah, that's right. We got Wolf Wolf. If you don't like it, you can go leave. Yeah. All right? You know what? I like those exactly. turtles. I like the turtles to be like, ooh. And by the way, I also want to shout this out. This might be Ice Cube's second best performance of his career. I know it's probably wow. not, but he's so good as Superfly. I was, I was, I was shocked. I mean, we're gonna we got Boys in the Hood. We got you know uh, Twenty One Jump Street. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying he's terrific in this movie as Superfly, and I did not expect that when I walked into this theater. I'll tell you somebody else who's terrific. Terrific. That is Paul Giamatti in the Ooh. Holdovers, which is my number eight pick of the year. Um, that man just has been that dog. You know, it's great how every five years or so he reminds us why he's one of the greatest living actors just out of nowhere. Um, but I felt New England's cold in my bones while watching it. You know, there's maybe one guy named David Fincher who can block and shoot a room with the craft and skill that Payne shows in this. Watch the scene where Hunnam and Mary Lamb kind of have a nice cocktail and watch late night game show TV. Their positioning in that scene tells a whole story onto itself. Uh, I think there's a lot of praise going to Dominic Sessa. I think he's a great newcomer, but his performance feels a little big at times, and I'm not quite sure why he's doing some of the things he is. Um, but I felt Divine Joy's Randolph's absence anytime she's not on the screen. She's really the glue of this movie and like kind of holds down a script that could really just be two embittered men with this nuance of sadness and grief in a really realistic way. I loved her performance, and I'm sure she's going to be nom this year for Best Supporting Actress. This is one of the stronger scripts of the year, too. I think Giamatti and Cesar are really kind of sparring in the first half of this, but the script really gives this film time to breathe and experience to mature with one another into an odd father-son relationship that just hits ten times harder when the twist of this movie is revealed. Mm -hmm. I think at times it is nostalgic for nostalgia's sake, 
Um, I'd like to see Payne maybe take some bigger swings with this next project, but I'll be damned if this movie didn't make me feel something. I think if you add it to your Christmas movies rotation for years to come, uh, you won't be mad that you did. This is my number five movie of the year. Um, just want to shout it out uh, before we get to that later. This is a New England Movie Hall of Fame entry. I want to welcome it to the club. I want to say Manchester by the Sea Patsy on the back. It welcomes you in the, in the club. But it's nice Good to have... Goodwill Hunting's like, hey, nice to see you. It's been a while since someone came into the club. We're a little dormant here. It's a little it's a little dead. The verdict is raising up a cocktail right now. The verdict is raising up a cocktail. That's right. You know, like <laughs> the town is cocking a rifle. <laughs> Jamie Renner's like, oh, there goes college soccer. You know, that's that's how that's going. Uh, and Patriot Day is still like, can we get in? And they're like, no. No, you can't. Get out. Stop. Leave us alone. But I love the holdovers. We'll talk about it later. Um, okay. I'm sure we're going to be saying that right now from you, Nick, because my number seven year is uh, Past Lives. Hmm. Boy, I- I'll keep my, my thoughts to a minimum then so you can talk about it more in, in detail later. But, like, boy, what a no, movie. No, 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 no. Let it rip. Let okay. It rip. Okay. Um, you know, it's it's. I went into this movie, I think this month was when I saw it, and I was I had heard all year, like, best movie of the year, one of the best romances of the last couple of years, this thing and that thing, and so much praise for it that I was like, is it really, like, it's going to live up to that? Like, it's going to do that for me? And I don't want to say it it didn't because it is, I mean, it's on my list, so <laughs> obviously. But I, I was just like, wow, it kind of does, doesn't it, huh? This is just terrific stuff. Like, really, really talented things from, like, the script to uh, the direction to the acting. It even looks pretty great for, for a small movie. The way Celine's song directs New York is probably my favorite thing about this movie. Where when you're in Nora's apartment, it feels incredibly intimate and small. And when she's walking around the neighborhood, you're like, oh, this is just where she lives. You kind of forget it's New York City. But then she also directs it skillfully enough that when um, – I forget the character's name, the male character's name – comes over from South Korea. When he comes over in the water, I was like, oh, yeah, this is New York City. Oh, oh, yeah, there's like giant buildings overhead and stuff like that. And it's just really impressive how she does that. And I don't know how many directors that like – go to New York for like a small thing and then blow it up and then bring it back small while never losing sight. that This is like a really personal close knit story. That's not trying to be about the spectacle of one place or one location. It's about the relationship between two people over 20 plus years. Last lives is on my list. It is number four. I will wait to share my thoughts as we've done throughout okay. the podcast so far here. Uh, and I believe it's time for me to read my number seven. It is. Okay. My number seven of the year is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Let's go. I think it's telling of this movie's quality that one of the things that stuck with me the most is when Gwen Stacy is behind these great watercolor paintings of green and pink and what literally sounds like rain is falling in the movie theater behind her. It's not the action fight scenes or the massive cliffhanger that really stuck with me. It's emotions that this film for children really mines out of its source material. I think this is the best voice acting of the year throughout by people you may recognize, but the performances feel so real and movie that you can kind of check that baggage at the door. Um, It's a rare movie that breaks format and genre as much as this, like as far as something that is so heavy in franchise. But what's great is it's truly unique in the sense that it's, in on the joke you know Mm -hmm. it's not really (laughs) the material itself (laughs) was kind of commenting on this ridiculous premise that we've kind of worked ourselves into and how complex and unsustainable that is Uh, it's a great example of what the medium can be and should aspire to 
It's shattering so many conventions and rules that feel so arbitrary at this point. But it's also self-aware, like I said, and references that absurdity. Um, I'm excited for part two, but man, this just kind of feels like one of those films. It can't be topped. I saw this with Resident Dog Vaughn. Um, and I think I'm just starting to realize that I've seen more movies with this guy than anyone else in the past five to ten years. So Ooh, shout out to Dog. Katie's just like, oh, man, Vaughn's taking my spot. <laughs> you know, it's hard to. Katie doesn't <laughs> want to go see Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse <laughs> at 4.30 on a Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> but Bibby Vaughn's like, let's go. I got my mask on. Let's go. Yep. Uh, this is perfect, Nick, because this is my number six, so we could just keep talking about it some more. We can just roll right along. Um, perfect. You make such a good point about the ambition of this movie, because when I was growing up, I never liked multiverses, especially as like a comic book reader. They felt cheap. It's like, hey, we need a character to come back from the dead. Fuck it. Multiverse. Let's go. Rip it. Rip it. We need a stupid plot hole about where someone went when they're like in the middle of a big fight and they get sucked into a portal and they get a fucking multiverse. I don't know. Just try it. When it, like, it just felt so cheap and stupid and redundant. And it always felt like a detour of the narrative rather than a feature. But Spider-Verse takes the opposite approach. It uses its like infinite imagination to like conjure like visuals and designs hitherto unknown to man. Like when they're walking around, is, is it the spider sanctum? What do they call it? The spider hub? I whatever, you know. Um, hmm. it's just incredible to like look at and be like, oh my god. And the way that its two-second images carry more weight and ambition than like most feature-length films is astounding. Um, the scene you mentioned about Gwen and her dad when they're just talking. It's like, oh, yeah, movies can do this, can't they? Huh? Animated movies can do this where a father and daughter have like a really hard conversation. And that's kind of the magic of Spider-Verse. And like its ability to like thwip like web-shaped punches to your heart and soul between the Gwen Stacy conversation, the conversation with Rio and Miles, which she's like, hey, look out for that little boy. I still love him. It's just extremely heartwarming and just like impressive. Um, it's just so awesome. It's so awesome to watch a Spider-Man movie that is like, hey, the whole point of this character is you have to make sacrifices, even though when they suck. Because so many other movies, uh, the Disney ones exclusively, have forgotten that whole message. And so to watch Spider-Verse have its central plot point <laughs> be sometimes Spider-Man has to sacrifice things, it was really awesome. It was awesome. And um, I do have my frustrations with it. I really, I'm not a huge fan of the uh, look out for part two kind of yes. endings. I've never been big on that, but I, I think that's pretty a pretty easy hang up to get over and something that I can work with. Um, I'm really excited to see part three. It seems like it got delayed, unfortunately, because of the strikes, which we mentioned. But everyone watch this movie. Should be, I think it'll probably win the Oscar for best animated fe- feature. It's between that boy and the heron. I think that's true. That's 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 a great point, which I have yet to see as well. Me as well. Keep um, missing that. Every time I want to go see it at Draft House, dude, the whole it's it's always playing in a small one of the smaller theaters, and every seat is sold out. I'm like, I'm not going to be the guy who takes a seat right next to next to the stranger. I never want to be. I always try not to. You just look over the guy like Miyazaki, huh? They're like, please. Just I'll leave take me the alone. exit row seat before I sit next to somebody. I'll just I'll, I'll take it. Just give it to me. Uh, your complaint is the same reason why it's my number six and it's not higher on my list. I initially had it, I think, at five at one point. But the more I thought about it in comparison to the other movies we're going to talk about, it just feels like an unfinished narrative. And a lot of second installments in a trilogy and with like arcs achieved, plot progression, or like a downcast feeling. I mean, the obvious is Empire Strikes Back. What all of those movies feel like, okay, something happened to the characters and there's like the food, the story's over. But Spider-Verse ends with almost all of its main characters at the same place outside of Gwen Stacy. And I found that really frustrating. 
you know, Miles yes. goes into the movie as like, I don't know what I want to be. I don't know who I'm going to be. I don't know what I can, what I'm supposed to do, what I'm not supposed to do. He ends the movie the exact same place. Miguel is like, we have to let this captain die. We have to let your father die, Miles. Guess what? He ends the movie with this guy's got to die still. It's just kind of like, all right, like this is cool. But if we're making the top 10 movies of the list, I don't want to give to a movie that's plot is stuck in neutral and a feeling of like, well, I don't know what's going to happen yet. You know, like, like, I guess I was scared when this movie ended because Spot is going to like turn up and wreck stuff. But am I really afraid that he's going to lose to his like alternate self and that like punching bag thing when they've already set up in the first movie? They're like, don't watch the mouth, watch the hands. I don't know. Like, it just feels like, all right, so the movie ends on this cliffhanger, but I know where we're going pretty obviously. Um, and as, as gorgeous as it is, I kind of can't knock it ahead of other movies that are like complete succinct stories. Yeah, I'll be, be I'll be honest. I agree with you 100 percent. And I'm getting to the point on my list here where it's like six and five were tough to decide on. You yes. know, like they, they could have really gone either way. I just went with personal like, like I said last year, I went with what made this dog happy. You know, mm-hmm. woof, woof. You just got to do me. <laughs> okay, your number your number six. My number six film of the year is a little film that came out earlier in the summer called Barbie. I don't know if anybody's Ooh. seen it or heard about it. Check out the Barbie Oppenheimer episode if you'd like to hear two white cis males talk about Barbie in depth. <laughs> um, so I'm going to try and keep this a little little brief. Amazing set designs, and it was great to see someone like Greta get an IP and run with her vision. With what feels like a no-holds-barred besides the mid-movie car commercial, listening to her talk about the depth of field and how that affected which shades of pink went where, this is an auteur's vision of Barbie land. This is made by someone who actually played with the things she's commenting on. Um, her love and tender care are so obvious throughout. The Will Ferrell stuff still stinks. I'm sorry, Barbie heads. Yeah. Uh, but what Margot Robbie is doing, bringing this character literally to life out of plastic, it's all the stuff she's bringing to the role that really makes this crazy concept work. And how can I forget about our boy Goss? He just mm. absolutely steals the show, and he is having a real hard time sharing. He just can't <laughs> give it back, and I don't blame him. Give him his first Oscar purely for the fact it took people almost 10 years to realize that Gosling has some of the best comedic timing in the business. He and everyone else are boosted by a witty and charming script brewed up by Greta and husband Noah Baumbach. Um, but what this movie did that transcends and why I think it's going to endure is it let everyone in on the fun. You know, it's hard to be a woman. It's hard to have expectations constantly heaped upon you. Sometimes it's just hard to exist and be a human in this world. For a Barbie movie to be cognizant of that and nail those ideas in such a big way is a win for everyone in the film community, in my opinion. I did not have this on my list. Um, It was going to be in my honorable mentions, but I knew we'd talk about it at some point. And I'm glad uh, one of us had this on its list. Um, The Will Ferrell stuff is what drags it down for me really, really hard. Uh, The thing that you mentioned of just like, why is he in this movie? The subplot goes nowhere. They go there to all of a sudden help Barbie, but 20 minutes ago they wanted a cager. And so as much as I like a lot of parts of Barbie, the the performances, the set design, I couldn't get it into the top 10 for that reason. Because when you have a whole B plot that literally goes fucking nowhere, I just couldn't do it. (laughs) Really? I'm surprised that this isn't on your list. It's not on my list. I don't know. I just it didn't strike me a certain way for whatever reason. Uh, maybe it's a theme oh, going. the internet's gonna hate you. Well, I mean that's fine. I, I'm fine with that. It was 13 on my list. I have it ahead of like uh, Mission Impossible and showing up. Uh, it's just right behind May December, but it, it just feels a little like I I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't want to be too critical of this because I think it's a good movie and I understand why people liked it and I'm so happy it made the a billion dollars it did because like thank God. 
it's honestly really awesome that we could get two best director nominations to be females this year between Celine Song and Greta Gerwig. Like I, mm-hmm. I'd have to really look back when the last time that happened, maybe I was it 2020. Was it, was it like recently though? Between uh, Chloe Zhao and, and Nomadland and this is a, this is an Oscar conversation episode, yeah. later, but <laughs> as we, as we both stare silently, be like, Oh, but it is awesome to see that this movie's doing what it's done. And I think like we mentioned in the Francis Ha episode, I'm just really glad Greta is doing what she wants from here on out. Like she has the full complete control. She's got the blank check. Go do what you want to do, Greta. And I think like this is not as good as the last two movies, but I think it's pretty, pretty damn good. I really enjoyed it. I thought, you know, it lived up to my expectations. And what I really enjoyed as well was seeing people who would not have watched this movie or talk about it. Like I got a text from Derek the other day talking about Barbie. Mm. You know, like that's not the it's not the target audience for Barbie, but it it went there and it got that, and I think that's awesome. So, number six for me on the year, Josh, take it away. Number five for me is is like I mentioned, the holdovers uh, by Alexander Payne, written by David Hemmingson. Uh Like we said, New England Movie Hall of Fame welcomes a new member. Uh, they give him the next card, they give him some champagne, and they say, hey. Paul Giamatti. Paul Come Hunt. on over, dude. Come on over. <laughs> hey, you want some champagne? I got some Miller's Light, though, if you really want that stuff. Um, <laughs> Dominic Sessa, Paul Giamatti, you're just taking some some things, just doing some some shots, just having a good time. <laughs> um, this is my Christmas movie. You know, like, give me some sadness. Give me some longing. Give me a set of unlikely characters that find companionship in one another. That's what Josh likes. That's what, that's what I crave around the holiday season is the story of, like, found family and beautifulness. Uh, I rewatched it this week with my mom because I was like, hey, mom, Christmas movie. You said you want to watch a Christmas movie. And guess what? Because I'm me. We can't watch Rudolph. We got to watch the holdovers. And I will say the first 45 minutes really do. Um, I don't want to say drag. I don't know if you feel the same way, but they are really slow. The first 45 minutes. I have the, the that is a hang up for me. And my other <laughs> hang up in the first 45 minutes is it sets up social commentary and it just lets hang in the air for the yes. entirety of the movie. And that's why I could not put it higher because it's so set up to spike and be perfect and have some uh, like a lot of more subtextual nuance. And it just doesn't go there. And that's what kind of frustrated me with the first 45. I would definitely agree. But for me, the second half is so strong. And the twist that we mentioned where you find out his dad's not dead, he's in an asylum. And the speech that Sessa gives uh, about like I don't want to become my dad, and the way Paul Giamatti, who started this movie, making fun of this kid, is like you don't have to become your dad. It's just really, really beautiful stuff. It's probably moving to watch every Christmas now because I do find it brings like the juice of like, hey, you can have a lot of awful things happen to you in life, and you can be alone, but you can always find someone else who connects with you, and that's important around Christmas time wherever you are because you're not always going to be with your family. And so the holdovers, it's great. Great movie. I agree with you 100%. Add it to your Christmas list movies. As I said, you won't be disappointed. Mm. Are you ready for my next pick? Are you ready, ready for number five, babe? I'm going full sicko mode. I'm going full sicko mode on you. Okay. My number five pick of the year is The Killer. <laughs> hey, Nick, is what? That's number three for me, baby. We're talking The Killer Let's later. Let's go, baby. Come on now. Let's I am go. what I am. And that's what this list is all about. Um, Josh and I have been quoting this movie endlessly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a wonder it hasn't bled into the show. And if I had one Oscar to give away this year, it would be to this film for best sound. 
group <sighs> fight scene is the most tense I've been all year at the movies. I didn't even know how much I had started to slink down in my seat until resident dog Vaughn and I were almost nestled cheek to cheek. Mm, it's more Vaughn. are <laughs> playing the hits. You want that cool dolly shot in and up on the plane from Fight Club? You want the in and out black cuts from Gone Girl? I got you, bitch. But I'm going to give it Ooh. to you at 100 out of 100. You know, content reflects creator in the sense that every detail, even if my new, adds up to the sum of its parts, even if you're just the gun for hire. Fincher is the fucking king of inserts, the guy who makes people putting a fork down look interesting and like it was done over the course of 109 takes. This is not the best movie of the year by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly my favorite theatrical experience of the year, bar none. This is why it's uh, it's number three for me. I'm just going to spill some tea here. Look, I just I I want to see a David Fincher action movie, and we got it. And guess what? It fucking rules. It's terrific it stuff. Rips. It rips. It rips. I don't know if I can find a two-hour section in any movie this year that just like has momentum and the juice to just keep going and going and going and feel like a video game, but like the most coolest video game you've ever played. Where it's an action movie, but it's a thriller. But at the heart, it's about this guy who's just like a complete hypocrite. One of the quotes I highlighted when I was writing down my review and my notes is like, I'm not here to take sides. It's not my place to formulate any opinion. And then the rest of the movie is about him taking the side and formulating an opinion. Formulating an opinion and having feelings, <laughs> which he also says he shouldn't do. Yeah. Yes. Anticipate, which he also doesn't do. Yes. It's like, it's amazing. And um, I think that that's, I've talked about this movie with a lot of people this year. And that's like the big hang up. It's like, this movie feels like a video game. And I understand that criticism, but like, I think you're kind of missing the point if that's why you are hung up personally. Well, also, go play the Hitman games. They, they're rule. They're awesome. Like, what are you talking about? That's the worst complaint ever. It's like, well, they're like a really good video <laughs> game franchise. Like, yeah, that's the point. Thank you. And, I mean, I just brilliantly shot. I mean, I watched a thing where the cinematographer, I forget his name, uh, talked about this and how they're shooting nine cameras for coverage for the, like, rear window-esque kind of mm-hmm. scene. And there's, like, 3D mapping going on. It just... Uh, Fincher the dog. Fincher's a goat. David Hemsher. Love this movie. Uh, I was I really wanted to watch this movie in San Diego because I had seen it when it came out uh, in theaters. And then I was like, oh, nice. I'll be able to watch this by myself. And I couldn't. And I had to do everything I could in my power not to, you know, go up to Netflix headquarters and ask uh, the CEOs if we had a problem. I, uh, I watched this movie twice in a week. I, uh, I watched the first time with Devin, friend of the show. And I was like, hey, let's have like a, a watch party. Let's watch The Killer together because like. New Fincher, when's the last time that happened? It was Mank. <laughs> Mank, <laughs> this is the killer. <laughs> it's an action movie. And then uh, one of my friends who couldn't make it to the watch was like, oh, I didn't get to watch The Killer, huh? And I was like, a week later. He hadn't mentioned it in a week. Steven had it mentioned in a week. But I was in a call with him one day. I was like, hey, you haven't watched The Killer yet, have you? He's like, no. I'm like, well, let's just watch it. You know, like, I, I want to make it up to you because you couldn't be able to watch it with us. But in my head, I'm like, I just want to watch this movie again. I'm just a little sicko that wants to watch this man miss the old man and shoot the uh, dominatrix. You know, what can I say? Yeah. I want to hear him get smashed against the TV and hear the glass break. And Fincher just was like, no, we need to get the right TV because the sound <sighs> isn't right. Like when the pixels break, it's just, oh my God. It's not just... on. That scene is amazing with the sound design. <laughs> it's at, I think, the highest level of like, look what, what, look what I can do with this concept. Of and this is a, a thing we'll talk about later in the show, but like how many directors could make this movie this way? I think is extremely, extremely short for the killer to get the the fast minute performance, which is not showing any hint of charisma. It's just like sleek and sterile and just like scientific, but also this movie being deeply, deeply funny. 
was one of my favorite yes. things about it. I laughed so often during this movie. It's not even funny. The way he looks at himself and he goes, hey, it's just like, what an insane person this guy is. Or the, is. the speeches he gives, but also being so cold-blooded and being like unremorseful. Uh, this movie tells you this guy does not care about people. And it doesn't show any hint of like, oh, well, this is like in the last one where Joel, he actually does learn to love Ellie. It's like, no, nah, this dude does not care about literally anyone in his life. The way he snaps that girl's neck and lets her fall down the stairs. The way that he shoots the cab driver after he gives him everything he knows. Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton. There's just no remorse, no nothing. But there's also this really fun metatextual quality of the killer of like, is this David Fincher ruminating on the fact that like, if he messes up something in a movie, he can never change it because once it's locked in edit, he's done forever. And was a lifetime of being a perfectionist actually, mm. actually worth it? Yes. I also kind of dug us some subtext. Uh, yeah, great movie. Watch the it's killer. So good. It's so good. Uh, well, that was your what? Four or five? That was my five. Okay. My number five was the holdovers. So we're going to my four? Yeah, I think you already talked holdovers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, because you went, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. My number four, uh, like we mentioned, is The Iron Claw by Sean Durkin. Uh, you know, we kind of danced around it, but the thing that I'll just say is, like, my brother died when I was, you know, 17. And so when I heard about this movie at first, it was because <laughs> the second time I mentioned I watched a movie because Jeremy Allen White's in it. But I, I look, I just love the guy. I'm sorry. I've been with him since Shameless, and I just can't let him go. And so when I saw he joined this movie, and it was about wrestling, and it was about dead brothers, and it was about masculinity and like all this stuff. I was kind of like, all right, well, I'm in. <laughs> you know, there's no other way around it. And I wish there was a way to like perfectly describe my feelings on this. Um, but like, it really is that simple for me of just like, it really gets to the heart of what the last, you know, five to six years have been like for me uh, of having your brother be gone is like, it doesn't always manifest itself in this like all consuming river of like grief and torment and like you're devastated. It is quite often more like the way Carrie Von Eric or Kevin Von Eric deal with it of just being like, well, I guess I don't know how to feel, so I won't feel anything or I'll try not to feel anything. The most haunting shot of this movie to me, I don't know if you agree, is the way at Mike's funeral, you see Lily James just like crying her eyes out at the fact that she just lost her brother-in-law. And then she looks over at Kevin stone face nothing on his face at all that shot just like boom right to the heart um and like this movie captures this feeling of like when you have someone you love who's gone you can like get around your day you can do everything like that in a lot of ways it's kind of like having a fake limb for the rest of your life to kind of borrow a reference to the movie where like you can walk around on that limb you can run on that limb you can move around on it, and, and a lot of the time, if you don't really think about it, you forget it's even a prosthetic. But for the rest of your life, when you look down, you're like, oh, that is a prosthetic. That's not my real leg, is how this movie kind of captures the feeling of, of, of grief and sadness of like, I will go about my day. I will be doing things, and then I will look at one thing and be like, oh, yeah, my brother's dead. And this movie just nails that so perfectly, and it gets that like the immediacy of loss is not the worst part of it. It is understanding the shadow it casts over everything you do and like the way you think about everything forever. And I sent you a text this morning because I was into a podcast about the Iron Claw and they were having this conversation about like, oh, when Carrie goes to the afterlife and you see his perspective. To me, I never thought it was Carrie's perspective. I thought it was Kevin because the shot after it ends is Kevin holding his brother's hand 
And I've always thought back to the line where he says to Lily James's character, like, oh, I, I think about Jack Jack time, time again. But Carrie never mentions the younger brother who died. So why, when he goes to heaven, would he be thinking about his younger brother who he never met? Because Kevin met his younger brother or his older brother, Jack. Carrie didn't. And so for me, that's what this movie really gets of when I think about my brother now, I'm like, oh, he's with everyone that we love and he has them together with him. And that's why I always assumed it was Kevin, not Carrie, because that's how I view things now. Um, and just like the the like I was once a brother line is the the tearjerker of the movie, obviously. But just the fact of what he looks at his kids and he sees his brothers in them, that's the part that really almost you know made me break down and cry. And seeing it yeah. with my dad was this beautiful experience where we talked about it. And I mean, you know, my dad and I, we're not very emotional guys. And he didn't cry. I didn't cry. And we're driving back like, yeah, good movie, man. Efron must have taken steroids, huh? And like, just like very banal conversations. But then at one point as we're driving home, my dad like puts his arm on my chest like, hey, man, I love you. I don't say it as much as I want to, but I love you. And like, that's what the Iron Claw did for me. It's a very biased personal thing, but it just absolutely nails it. And I, I haven't stopped thinking about it since I saw it. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to get emotional on the podcast, but yeah. And the performances, uh, I don't want to like gloss over them either because Efron is so good, like you mentioned. Jeremy Allen White is so good. Harris Dickinson maybe has the hardest role in the movie because he has to be so awesome in those first forty-five minutes that his specter looms over everything else, and he nails that. Moira Tierney has been severely undertalked about in this movie. Very much so, yes. Oh, my God. The scene where she's talking about the dress and how she can't wear it again. Oh, man, that part wrecked me. Um, I also think this movie does a great job with the way it handles uh, the passage of time and the Mm. way these things happen to these characters, you know. Um, Unfortunately, Carrie, I believe, was the one who got into a motorcycle accident, right? Yep. And um, lost his leg. We don't see that happen. And then the next cut is him walking around and living his life without his leg, you know. It really shows how this one man experienced so much tragedy and pain in his life in such a short span. You know, mm. you look at the transitions on the wrestling cards. The first one's what, 1982, 1981, the last one's Something 1986. Like that. You know, it's yeah. really, really a short period of time that this family experienced such heartbreak, but a beautiful movie, really poignant. And one that like, while it is really sad, I want to watch it again because the, the relationships that these characters forge are so strong that like it, it, while it does hurt, you know, it's almost the same way that we deal with grief. It's like, yeah, but look at all those great times too. Yeah, exactly. Where where everything's kind of rose colored glasses about everything, where you look back at the memory and go, Oh, that was awesome. I loved when me and my brother did this, but also I can never do that again. And mm-hmm. uh this movie just shreds. It's just incredible. It's a, it's the ultimate like sad man movie instead of sad boy, where the first mm-hmm. hour you're like, Yeah, man, we're lifting weights, we're wrestling, we're hooking up with girls, we're drinking keggers, and then it's like, Oh man, I'm so sad and I'm so down and just like all that sort of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. it's an incredible achievement for Sean Dirk, and it really, really is to tell this story the way he does. And I know some people have given blowback for not including the story of Chris Von Eric, who was the other brother who died in real life. Um, but I understand why he did it. And for him to even tell the movie the way he did is just a remarkable achievement by him. So congratulations to him. Yes, great stuff. Ensemble cast of the year for me. Mm-hmm. It's on to me for my number four. It is. My number four is Past Lives, as we mentioned earlier. Mm. Uh, this movie has a frame, a singular image, that moved me beyond words this year. And I'm not going to tell anybody what it is. Just watch that movie. Um, 
that's a lot of this movie though it's quiet intimate liminal spaces realistic people scenarios not a lot of flashy camera work i think the flashiest shot is maybe the the shot that trains down from the bridge and that's just mm. <laughs> amazing um it's simplicity is kind of what pulled me in uh, and this is the quiet quietest an audience has been all year in a the movie theater we all just shut the fuck up and let this thing <laughs> envelop us in this kind of collective wave um, Celine Song in her debut that will be stacked up again 15 years from now with the best of first features. Greta Lee's character exists in real life. I'm certain of it. This ending has a really complicated dynamic where it makes you say, depending on what side of the fence you're on, yes, kiss him right now, or no, no, don't make that mistake, mm. walk away. And I really can't remember too many, if any, films making me feel that way. Just a great rumination on forlorn love in the world we occupy with others that becomes our reality. And it's all framed against this beautiful immigrant story. A movie that really moved me as well. I don't know if it's going to... I hope it's getting that push across the finish line to really be getting the awards praise that it deserves. I don't know about the award awards wins, but this is one of the five best films of the year, and you should see it. I love uh, about this movie, this is what I'm glad we can kind of talk about now, is that it recognizes how this would seem in any other movie. Of The way that the John McGarrow character is like, yeah, in any other movie, I would be the evil white husband who is being mean to his wife, and you're going to go back with your old childhood lover, and everything will be kumbaya, and I'm the villain. But this movie is never trying to take that shortcut. You know, I, I'm pretty sure this is a very personal movie, so I understand why, you know, Celine Song didn't do that because <laughs> I think she'd make her real life husband come off that way. But it's so smart of the movie to acknowledge that and be upfront about the fact that these are people, not caricatures. This is not a, a movie about two people falling back in love and happily ever after. It's a question of like, did I get this right? I don't I don't know. It really leaves you just like haunted in a way of like she loves both these guys, but is she happier with one over the other? Is, is it even her fault? Is it just fate that did it? And it engages with such human topics that are just like breathtaking in a way of the idea of really past lives. The, the Inuit, I believe they talk about is incredibly dynamic and refreshing to like American culture. Cause we don't really think about it like that. You know, we're not really open with the idea of the past and like reincarnation and those ideas, but the idea that like, we're all mean something to everyone and every life it's just a matter of what we mean then is the, the, the difference, you know? Mm -hmm. Great stuff. Yeah, um, I think it's a great movie. That's, that's, that's one that I think in a year or two we should maybe do an episode on, you know? Mm -hmm. I, re I really would like to talk about that movie a little more in depth. Especially with some, some time and scope away from it, I think it would be better off, yes. Yeah. My number three, as we talked about, is a killer. Um, I don't want to talk about it more. Just like sicko mode, sicko mode. I found out Michael Fassbender used fisting gloves uh, as his gloves when he's shooting people yeah. in that movie. That's just terrific. And uh, we'll just leave it there. The killer, go watch the killer. We already talked about it for like five minutes. We're like, isn't David Fincher the best? <laughs> yes, the killer all the way. Uh, I guess that means it's time for my number three. Uh, my number three of the year is Poor Things. Mm. Emma, fucking stone she's always had the goods but seeing her just cook with an auteur and black comedy genius like Lorgos or yorgos lathamos had me smiling ear to ear like the physicality of this performance and how that changes over time throughout the movie like the difficulty of the language this film presents in the first hour or so and she really pulls it off without like it seems without any effort like without going into goo goo gaga territory 
amazing stuff. She deserves all the flowers. Um, I'd still give the Oscar to somebody else who I think we're going to talk about here shortly. But we both love Mark Ruffalo. I think we can both agree, though. He's been doing either Marvel stuff from about 2016 to 2021, or it's kind of safe, nice, yet interesting supporting character that'll probably get me nominated for an Oscar, a la Spotlight, Dark Waters, or anything. But this is the first time I've seen him dig in and go full heel. He is an Mm. absolute dastardly shitbird in this movie. (laughs) And, like, what makes it work so well is he's reveling in it, you know, while also being completely aloof of it. (laughs) We're, We're all in on the joke besides him. He's chewing the walls off the amazingly designed scenery in this one. The production and art design team deserve all of the praise, all the flowers. This movie looks and feels, like, so erroneous yet tactile. It's breathtaking. Like, I feel like I'm on some cyberpunk mid-1800s Italian Renaissance architecture acid trip. It's just amazing. <laughs> like, it's it's really great in that that regard. Like, Willem Dafoe de- de- delivering a death scene so powerful. I'm like, is he really dead for a couple of seconds? <laughs> um, Robbie Ryan and Yorgos Lathamos just talking about letting the camera breathe in this artificial world they created as two dogs working at their peak. I saw this sandwiched in between two older couples, which made for a very interesting and honestly more funny experience when things in this film get very, very intimate. Uh, Hilarious yet heartfelt takes on ideas usually reserved for serious time, like feminism, female liberation, and ultimately what it means to be a human. Interesting pairing with another film that came out this year I'm sure we'll talk about with Barbie. Yes. um, I haven't seen Poor Things yet. I'm very excited to see it uh, eventually. I've heard nothing but fantastic things, uh, but this easily feels like Ruffalo. I don't know if we're talking about so much about Ruffalo real quick, but like, it feels like his most unique indie idea since I know this much is true, which we both loved. So I'm glad mm-hmm. that he's, you know, in the later half of his career doing that. But this feels like the Emma Stone movie that it's like, oh yeah, she's probably one of the best actresses in the business now, finally. You know, uh, it's her putting all of the things together that make her awesome for like the ultimate role that's just like, Emma Stone on a platter. Here you go. In a, yes. in a fantastic way. I mean that in no belittling sense. Well, because after a while, Land, she kind of like, I don't want to say disappeared, but it's it's doing stuff like uh, the favorite is probably the closest we got to like, oh, yeah, isn't she awesome again? But that's a supporting role. And then it's like Zombieland. It's the Croods. It's Cruella. And then poor things feels like the final announcement of like, oh, yeah, just a reminder, she's the best in the game, probably one of them. Yes. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, it looks immaculate. I'm very, very excited to see it. Just haven't gotten there yet. I think you're going to have a great time, man. Like, again, another movie that like, while some of the themes like were a little on the nose to me, you know, and that's maybe why it's not my n- number two slot, because when I walked out of it, I was like, I was on the high. I was like, this could be number one, mm. you know, but then I kind of. You you give yourself a little time, a little distance. You start to think, well, this didn't really fully work for me, or that didn't work for me, blah blah blah. But the sheer craft that went into this, it's just an amazing movie. And and her sexuality in this film, and being so open and comfortable with that, and like showing the connection that her and Yorgos have, I respect that as somebody who hopes to someday be a, a director who makes something like a third good as either of those two have. I really respect the the craft and like relationship they built with one another to go there. So just an amazing film all all along. Go check it out. You'll really enjoy it. My number two movie of the year is, uh, I mean, look, <laughs> I like that we're at the point of the episode where it's like, all right, well, there's only two movies left they haven't talked about. It's just a matter of where they have them ranked. For me, sure. I have... Uh, Both probably start with a K. Yeah, they do. They do. Um, for me, it's Killers of the Flower Moon is number two. Um, behind, 
I'll just say behind Oppenheimer. But we'll talk about Killers of the Flower Moon first. Um, boy, <laughs> what a uh, horrific movie. There's no gags. There's no jokes. It's a point that you really hit on, and I don't want to steal too much of it. But like, this feels like the I don't know. The the earlier movies Marty has about America feel very much about the idealization of what we can be. And it almost feels incredibly depressing that as he's gotten older and he's kind of getting to his final statements about life and the country that he lives in, he's made talk made and talk so much about, he's like, oh no, America's the worst. We are the the most broken people that would kill others for the uh, opportunity of greed and money and hunger. And uh, it's awful. <laughs> it's awful to hear that Marty kind of feels that way in, in some degree. And we talked about how, how many directors could make this movie. I don't know how many directors that are this talented and this, you know, arguably one of the best directors of all time could put their ego aside as they are filming the movie to say, this isn't right. We cannot make this movie, the Ernest Burkhart or the Jesse Plemons character movie. It can't be that this should be about the victims, not the perpetrators and not the people who solved it. And so as much as this movie is great, and we'll talk about them when you talk about it, Nick, I really want to shout that part out to Marty. Because for a guy that age to not be that stubborn and that willing to change his entire movie on the fly to be about that, a, a culture he didn't even know, and then get insight from the culture itself is incredibly commendable. And I just want to give Marty that shout out first. To abandon the idea of adaptation that hard because it's just based yes. off of a novel or off, off of a, a true crime book is is uh, why he's the best living filmmaker alive. Um, so yeah, Killers of the Flower Moon without kind of going too in depth on it before we get there is my number one film of the year. Mm-hmm. So without further ado, I think it's time we probably talk about Oppenheimer. <laughs> for my number two film of the year, which we also did a whole episode on. So I'll keep it brief, especially at this point, we're probably getting a little long in the tooth, but this film is a prime example of best and favorite Oppenheimer's editing, sound design, cinematography, some of the performances in sheer scope are insurmountable this year. No one did it better than Nolan. But is it my favorite? No. I return to it most certainly, but the experience of seeing this in a dark IMAX theater—it's just not going to be matched. It's like seeing a sympathy. It's like seeing a symphony or listening to them on Spotify. It's incomparable, right? If I ever think there's a movie that demands to be only seen in theaters, like you can't own it, this is it. Like <laughs> while I still have the typical Nolan issues with it on the whole, putting this any lower than two would just be foolhardy. Um, Oppenheimer is my number one. Like I mentioned. This is a Titanic masterstroke uh, for Chris Nolan that I think is incredible. You know, um, he's at the peak of his powers, I feel, at this point in his career, which is ironic considering he's probably had uh, another peak with the Dark Knight and everything else that people would want to be their peak and, you know, be happy if that was their entire career. But for him, it's like the LeBron thing where, like, LeBron has a (laughs) Hall of Fame career with the Heat, has a Hall of Fame career with the Lakers, has a Hall of Fame career with the Cavaliers. Yeah. And then the Lakers. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We're like, he's just on his next part of it. And the thing that I really find just incredible about this movie and that I'm still struck by is he took a three hour movie about a scientist and got it to close to a billion dollars, but also made it extremely engaging and entertaining in a way that doesn't compromise the messaging there's never this like obscuring of the message or what he tries to feel about these things for the sake of entertainment he somehow and again this is i think something we mentioned on the oppenheimer episode he wrote this script i don't think nolan writes many scripts for his movies for the most part he does it to jonathan nolan he lets david escoyer get involved or someone else for him to write this script 
it's just incredible. Like <laughs> for him to combine everything that he does so well into this movie, it's just an immaculate achievement. And you make a great point about how the fact it could sweep every single major award from best actor, best supporting actor, best picture, best director, and how it's best versus favorite. For me, best is favorite right now for Oppenheimer. And it's why it's one for me. Cause I think this is a movie that we will be dealing with for another 50 plus years. Yeah. It's an amazing achievement. I think it's two hours of holy shit. This is breathtaking filmmaking and it's about 30 minutes of, huh? Mm-hmm. I, so that's, I still have my hangups with it. I, I can't go all the way there with you. Um, but it is a great, interesting point of what I think makes both of our one and two great is adaptation and who tells the stories and how that story is told. Both of these guys could only make this film. Like no one else could make Oppenheimer the way that Nolan did. No one else could make Killers of the Flower Moon the way Marty did. Now that's mm. part of their genius and that's what makes them great. Um, the other part about Oppenheimer, why it's one for me is that I don't want to make it a thing of like the box office, but what this movie has done for the industry and what it has shown the industry, um, it's just like a beacon of light inside of everything to be like, Hey, lead the way with your ideas and your stories about people that you want to tell, not the stories that you have to sandwich into a different sort of cover. You know, I, I love the dark Knight stuff and it's my favorite comic book trilogy. I think bar none, but it's still a Batman story where no one feels kind of confined and trapped to that. But Oppenheimer feels like, okay, let me do the story I want to tell flat out. There's nothing I have to hide, mm-hmm. nothing I have to do. And of course, that's really easy when you're Christopher Nolan and you have the cachet that he does and the blank check he does to do whatever you want because no studio's going to say no to you for the most part, unless they're Warner Brothers who are really stupid. Um, but no one can do that in a way that it's just like breathtaking. And the Trinity sequence is a theater moment I will never forget for the rest of my life of everyone in the theater just being dead silent watching this mushroom cloud roll in and be like, holy shit, we can do that. And I think what Oppenheimer makes that is so scary to me is that previous moments or previous movies are about certain iconic pieces of moments in time, right? You know, your moment of, I don't know, fucking the Beatles. I don't know. know. (laughs) We're we're ragging on the Beatles so much. But Oppenheimer is about a little moment where time stopped and a new era started where the nuclear war era began and it no longer became a moment of your general grows, which are leading troops into battle and talking with presidents about plans. It transitions and it beautifully details this with the Strauss section of where the world is now decided by men who have a key in a briefcase. They turn the briefcase, they launch the coats, world's ended. And I think Oppenheimer is just so brilliantly perfect on that while also not giving J. Robert Oppenheimer the person a pass in some way. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, we've talked about it at, at length, so check that episode out if you want. Uh, we'll probably talk about it again. <laughs> for Oscar season, so I'm trying to keep my Oppenheimer takes fresh. I need to go rewatch it again before we do our Oscar stuff, but it's time for number ones, and my number one is Killers of the Flower Moon. I mean, any year Martin Scorsese releases a movie, especially one that just dated as long as this one did, more than likely it's going to be my number one. Such a deconstruction of a career built off of violence. There's no glamour or jokes of making a cup of coffee after a hit like Goodfellas. Murders here kind of occur more like Zodiac or some kind of disturbing documentary. Billy Gladstone delivered my favorite line of the year from any actor when she says to Leonardo DiCaprio, we need to sit for a while. Just sit with me and be still. This is a haunting film on America's lust for wealth and power. Seeing little Marty come out on stage in the last five minutes moved me to tears. I was like, oh man, he knows. Like... 
recognizes. So simultaneously a reckoning with American history and a meditation on the career it built, tip of the cap to Martin Scorsese, master of cinema, our greatest living filmmakers. I mean, there's probably moments in this movie where like, you know, they could have been cut out, but I'm so glad that they didn't and let him mm. just have a three hour and 26 minute movie. Amazing film. I know that it's not, um, I know that there's some, some difficulty on who's telling the story in the perspective, but I think like what you talked about, the idea to abandon it being from a law enforcement perspective was so smart and pays off massive dividends. And it's why this movie on the whole works and is, um, it's really difficult to watch, man. It's a, it's another one of those movies where I had this weird thing where I didn't know if I was, I didn't know if I was being entertained, but I know that I was being really moved and challenged and kind of like poked and prodded in, in areas that I didn't want to be. And that's what great art can do. So pillars of the flower moon is my number one of the year. I just felt very um, awful (laughs) throughout the movie, which is something I've already said, but like it doesn't, give you anything to cling on to to be like oh well you know i mean maybe there's the one line where he's like i'm here to see about these murders what murders so he was doing them because like the, yeah. the internet just grabbed that as a meme so in the moment where i was watching it's like oh yeah <laughs> but then it it cuts right back to just the the murders and um i i love the way he shoots the murders where it's just it's often a quick cut there's very little anticipation in them there's very little like the music swells and we're falling down this ravine and then he takes the shot and then they're just they're doing this thing it, it's never that it's just like it's objective two shots three shots yes. of murders happening on screen yes they shoot them the body falls we cut away because that's all we need to see because anything more than that is glorifying this violence or it may be getting close to it and that's the last thing this movie should or, or these victims deserve to have done to them yeah we're gonna be talking about this movie a lot come oscar season i really hope for me give give it to marty just for that last send-off but i do think that probably your number one pick here is is the front runner for best director um as do i the last thing i would want to say about covers the flower moon is the ending is kind of i don't know is it controversial do people not like the whole like radio play at the end i I don't know i it's it's null and void it's a point of matter that i'm not even really (laughs) talking yes (laughs) because for me i was kind of like hesitant on that i was like wow it feels weird that marty comes out but the more i think about it that last line that he has there was no mention of the murders is really the thing that has stuck with me the most when i think about and watch this movie is that you spend these three hours with these horrific awful events and then it's kind of like we talked about with BlackBerry where the asteroid is coming and you find out at the end that no one talks about this until 2023, really in a big way. It's just, it's brutal. And it's, it's someone recognizing a career built off of violence and yes. kind of the glam, glamorous aspects of that, or at least the, the mundane aspects that violence can take on in our lives. Coming to terms and coming to grips with that and what that meant for him throughout his career and now what it means to him later in his life as he's looking at his twilight years. It's just, it's poignant stuff, man. It really hits, it's hard right in the gut. So, um, yeah, this is my number one film of the year. Martin Scorsese is my favorite director, as I've said probably countless times on the show, and I love him. Before the show, Nick said if he saw Martin Scorsese, he would cry and he would hug him. And, uh, yeah, so congrats, Marty. You got next on. I'll be with Chris Nolan. We'll both go to the New England Movie Hall of Fame Club. We'll have some drinks there, have a few laughs, and we'll try and persuade Mr. Nolan to maybe, you know, pop on some uh, some Boston flicks. Okay. 
I mean, Marty's an Marty's an honorary member after the departed. He's got a ticket. He's in. Oh, he's yeah, he's he's solid gold, babe. He might be a chairman at the New England Movie Hall of Fame Club. I don't know. We'll have to check in with the board of directors. He's the guy who like hands you the card like when it prints out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that's Ben Affleck or Matt David. Come on, you know that's what it is. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, well, that's 2023. Um, we're, we're pivoting to 2024 now for the most part. Yeah, I think it's been a great year for movies. We'll have our Oscar episode coming up here. You know, the National Border Review, the Independent Spirit Awards, the Golden Globes. You got to have yeah. the Road Dogs top 10 release, oh, wow. too. You know, the doggies, if you will, uh, essentially. Ooh, I like yeah. that. Yeah, it might be oh, the title okay. of the episode. We might have just stumbled on the title in the last two minutes of the show. So look at us go. We're so organized. We're cooking. Look at us go. The doggies. We'll be talking about doggies, chickens, and ducks, and storks, and a pig named Babe next week. Mm. Next week, we'll be talking about Babe, Pig in the City, folks. So look out for that. Happy holidays. Josh, another great year in the books here as we look forward to 2024. Like, rate, subscribe. Check out that podcast. Check out that Instagram. Road underscore dogs underscore podcast. Road dogs out.